Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Currently, this is where my grandparents are from, and so we are taking a family trip together. But I miss you guys. Merry Christmas. I wish I was there to celebrate um, Christ's birth with you. Um, But I am bringing you today's scripture passage in front of Church of St. Dominic, which is an 800-year-old Roman Catholic church where I and my family will actually be going to Christmas Mass. Um, So please stand for today or remain standing for today's scripture passage. From 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Now when the king was settled in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, See now I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. Merry Christmas. Ciao. (laughs) Amen. You may be seated. I think chow is the Latin for this is the word of the Lord. I think that's what that. (laughs) Uh, To start our sermon today, I want to ask my friend Debbie McCulloch to come on down. There she is. We have some really good news, and, and it's really appropriate for her to deliver this good news. As you know, fourth Sundays have been this semester, fourth Sundays have been about Africa, and so Debbie... Well, and Debbie is a, has been for so many years now the leader, the pioneer of that effort. So, Debbie, go ahead and tell us uh, what we have been able to do. Well, I am very excited to let you know that uh, we came to you maybe a month ago or so with a request to fund some tuition grants for some university students in Zambia that we've become very fond of. And we have actually fully funded those tuition grants for 2024. (laughs) So I just wanted to come and say thank you. It's okay. In fact, it's good. I'm really humbled by the fact that we get to do this work. It's so important and it's ours to do. And so yesterday when I called Matthew, he's one of our new uh, students. We met him when we were there this summer. He's an incredible kid. He's already completed his undergrad and he had dreams of going to medical school, but it was out of his reach. It was impossible. It was not going to happen. And he reached out to me and just humbly asked me, would that be possible? And I said, well, let's see. And so we came home and we told you about it and you did it. And I got to call him yesterday and tell him. And all he could say was, thank you, Dr. Debbie, over and over and over. His voice was shaking, kind of like mine is right now. <laughs> um, but that's all he could say. Those are only, the, the only words that he could say was, thank you, Dr. Debbie. So I don't know how I got to be the one that got to tell him that, but it was <laughs> overwhelming and incredible. So I had to reach out to John and let him know. And he said, I had to come and tell you. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I hope your voice is shaking when you talk about this. I hope your heart is full when you realize the impact that these grants are having. We've already graduated two, two nurses and two teachers. Think about the impact that that will mm -hmm. have in an impoverished country. Mm -hmm. How many people they will impact over the life of their career. We now have two medical students that we're educating and a midwifery student. Think about the impact that we're having and carry that with you in your heart. I hope your heart is overflowing and you cry every time you talk about it because you did it. We did it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Debbie. Thank you. And I know she's trying to put together a, a, a very specialized sort of team for this next summer and then we're gonna put together a, a larger team with, I think I can say less skill, uh, just to build things uh, for the, for the following summer. So please, if you have any, any questions, please reach out to Debbie. It is the fourth Sunday of Advent. Each Sunday has a particular theme. It was hope, and then it was peace, and then it was joy, and today is love. This is, this is not a word to be taken lightly, everyone. Uh, this is not just any kind of love. This may not even be the kind of love that you see on your screens, as good as those Hallmark movies on the Hallmark Channel might be. This may be even better than that. And so we have a lot to talk about. But before we do, I'd like to ask you to pray for me, if you would. God, that's my best prayer that you would use me to try as best I can to describe the indescribable, to give us at least a glimpse of what it is that we mean when we say love, how this life-altering, universe-shaping love can come to bear in and then through us. Would you help me? Would you help me as I try to undertake that task now? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. As you notice, uh, we have a little different scripture song through the season of Advent. I, I love this O Come, O Come, Emmanuel uh, song. And, and we've said this before, but let me remind you, it is centuries, centuries old. It, it started as a, as a chant that the people of God would come together and chant each, each night, the last week before Christmas, they would come together and they would chant and they would gather around these texts and these labels for the Messiah. Dayspring, Emmanuel. This one, the key of David. This one is, and there's a verse to this effect, O come thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. It's an important word today, home. Make safe the way that leads on high that we no more have cause to sigh. Man. And Key of David is meant to remind you of this particular character of the Old Testament, and yep, it is King David, that King David, the shepherd boy, the one who bested Goliath and the lion that threatened the flock, the unassuming, reluctant replacement for King Saul, the king who failed so miserably, see Bathsheba and Uriah, and yet still is believed to have written some of the songs that are still kept in our ancient hymnal. 
the Psalter. And David, who is known as a man after God's own heart. David is also understood as Israel's greatest king. Powerful and effective ruler, victorious in so many battles, and at one point at least, well-respected at home, and that's where we pick up the story today. Thank you, Avarilla, for reading our scripture for us today. Now, when the king was settled in his house, his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, he had a, a prophet, a prophet of God in his cabinet, in his inner circle. And he says, see now, I'm living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God, the ark of the covenant that contained the tablets of the Ten Commandments, perhaps even Aaron's staff, and maybe even a, a bowl full of manna, the ark of God that was meant to represent for the people of God the very presence of God, Okay? The ark of God, the ark of God is in a tent. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. Nathan, the prophet, the one in the inner circle, the one in God's cabinet, he really thought this idea had some legs. He, he kind of liked this idea. Not only did it sound God-glorifying, but it had the added benefit of being politically beneficial to his boss, the king. I mean, who could argue with the king who was able to build God a box? Yep, go right ahead, king. I am sure God will love the box that you make for God. I'm just going to read you the next several verses. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan... Go and tell my servant, the king, David, thus says the Lord, really? Are you the one to build me a house to live in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved among all the people of Israel, did I once speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, now, why haven't you built me a house just yet? Now, therefore, you shall say to King David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will, says God, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more and evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You're going to build me a house, God says to David. You're going to build me a house. Tell you what, God said to David, how about if I build you a house? Now, this word house is doing a lot of work here. This word house does not just mean four walls and a nice roof. Here, this word seems to carry a whole lot more weight, like I'm going to build you a house, but more than that, a household, but more than that, an entire line. I'm going to build for you, David, build for you because you're not going to be able to do it for yourself. I'm going to build you a dynasty, a 
dynasty. An important storyline that you can't write, David, but you know what? I will write it for you. Going back to the scripture in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He, we think he means Solomon here, will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Now this is strange here, but listen to this. It's important. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with the rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. All of Scripture changes in 2 Samuel 7, verses 15 and 16. But, might have been translated, nevertheless, I will not take my steadfast love from him. As I took it from Saul, who was an utter miserable failure, whom I put away from before you. David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I read two different scholars, much smarter than me this week, who both said this is the most important passage in all of the Old Testament. Now, is it going to bother you if I say that something seems to change here in 2 Samuel 7? I hope it doesn't because, friends, something seems to change here as it has to do with how God interfaces with, interacts with, is with the people of Israel. Walter Brueggemann says it like this, heretofore, up to this point, God's commitments to Israel are regularly and characteristically conditional. They are governed by the ominous if of ethical requirement. Indeed, says Brueggemann, the whole of Mosaic faith, sounded by Joshua and Samuel as well, is that God's good inclination depends on Israel's obedience. I'm quoting from Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Here's that word. If you obey and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. But something changes here. Brueggemann again. With David, however, the if has disappeared. Now it is but, a conjunction that might here be rendered nevertheless. There are no acts of disobedience and purview which can make God, Yahweh, terminate this profound commitment. In this astonishing promise, Yahweh has signed a blank check to the David enterprise and has radically shifted the theological foundations of Israel. Some of you are very nervous now. You know, I know, and I know some of you are because I still hear from people every once in a while and says, Pastor, are you sure that we should be saying every week that God's mind about us is made up and the news is good? Because now it sounds like I can do whatever I want. Are you sure you don't want to say something like, hey, God's going to wipe you out if you do the bad thing? And again, I'll tell you, we have had people walk away because they just can't handle that kind of grace, that kind of God, who we believe, and I would say again, whose mind about us is made up, and the news is good. Now, <laughs> I'm not saying it doesn't matter how you live. 
In fact, Brueggemann goes on to say, this is not to say that there will not be sanctions and punishments, but they are not terminal, fatal. This is a powerful, clear articulation of justification by grace in which the works of David or Israel are not decisive. This God loves, ready? Unconditionally. Unconditionally. Remember how this verse in the O Come, O Come, Emmanuel says this. It says, O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. There is in that song and so many other songs and so many other texts the suggestion, this ache, that you and I would find our home in the covenantal love of God. A home constructed by none other than the God of the universe. This is our home. This thought that God's love is home for us can be found everywhere if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. For example, Isaac Watts wrote this hymn in the 18th century which was a paraphrase of Psalm 23. By the way, Psalm 23 is a good place to look if you're looking for a scripture that says, are we supposed to find our home in the heart of God, in the love of God? Yeah, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isaac Watt says it like this in the hymn, my shepherd will supply my need. The sure provisions of my God attend me all my days. Oh, may your house be my abode and all my work be praised. There would I find a settled rest while others go and come. No more a stranger nor a guest, but like a child, a home. Ugh. So what do we do when we come to church? What are we supposed to be doing? <laughs> you know, I, I sometimes worry that people, when they walk into a sanctuary, that has theater seats, I sometimes worry that you feel like that you are supposed to employ the same muscles that you employ at the theater. At the theater, you probably do what I do. If I'm gonna spend good money to go watch a movie, which Nazarenes are doing now, I'm told. <laughs> then at the end of that movie, I'm gonna declare whether it was good for me or not. Whether it was good or not whether I would come back, whether I would watch it again. All of this is contract language. But when the people of God gather around the nature of God, we aren't working on contract muscles. We're working on covenant muscles. When the people of God come to church, we sing the same songs, and we listen to the same passages of Scripture, and we gather around this table. We're not working on conditional if-then language. We are working on language that's better described by the word nevertheless. <laughs> nevertheless, I'm going to tip my hand here, and I'm going to upset somebody in the room, and I'm very sorry. Not really that sorry, but I'm a little bit sorry. This is the reason I really wish more weddings would happen in a church. In view, maybe even in the shadow of a cross. Do you know what the cross says? I'll give you a hint. It's not if then. The cross says nevertheless. Nevertheless. Now, 
You and I aren't, I don't think, born with great covenant muscles. In fact, I think we spend a lot of time in a culture, we get dipped into a culture that is so heavily contractual that kind of without, without knowing it, we start to develop contract muscles. And when you develop contract muscles, when you develop if-then muscles, your relationships start to be contractual. I don't like what the pastor said today. And if I don't like what the pastor said today, then it's a contract, not a covenant. I don't like the way that my spouse treated me today. And if I don't like the way that my spouse treated me today, then, man, if we're not careful, contract muscles take over. Now listen to me. I am not saying here that there aren't times when, in heartbreaking sorts of ways, covenants come apart. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. And sometimes they should when there is abuse. In fact, by the time there is abuse, that covenant's already been shattered. Does that make sense? But friends, we don't gather here to work on our contract muscles. Everybody know that? We gather to work on our covenant muscles. We don't, we don't gather here to work on our capacity and our ability to say as beautifully and poetically as we can, if then we gather here in the hopes that contrary to the winds and the waves of the entire culture out there, that in, a, in an if-then culture, you and I would learn to be nevertheless sorts of people. God's language is nevertheless. You know, it's, it's crucial that you know when this passage was written down. It wasn't when God was whispering to Nathan who was then shouting at David. It wasn't when David was considering whether or not to build God a box. We believe, and there's great evidence to suggest, that this passage of Scripture was written down while the people of God were in exile, in utter agony. It was written down and kept for them, but also for people like us. It was written down when people were coming to grips with the exile and everything that comes with it, the loss of home, the loss of the dynasty, the loss of place in a culture, the loss of any kind of power we thought we might have or need, the perceived loss of God. <laughs> but this is why this was all written down, to remind us, no, this isn't for God a contract. God said, nevertheless, whatever we're going through now is bad and it's hard, but it is not terminal where this covenant is concerned. God will still make good on the covenant that God extended to us. God's offer of love and covenant is not and never will be contingent. Now, this is gonna make you nervous again, ready? God's offer of love and covenant is not and never will be contingent on our answers. Not even contingent on our obedience, our behavior, our ability to forget, to remember the promises of God. God's language is nevertheless. Nevertheless, you are my people and I will love you. I will pursue you. I will give you chance after chance after chance after chance. I will forgive, not seven times, 
but seven times infinity times. God says, you will always have the offer of a home in my love. You'll always have a place to come home to. My love, says God, aches to be your home. Let's do it again. God's mind about us is made up, and the news is. But that doesn't mean that there won't be heartache. That doesn't mean that there won't be disappointment. That doesn't mean that there won't be job losses. That doesn't mean that there won't be diseases or failure, separation from God. As a matter of fact, yes, there can be separation from God. Well, how is that? Why is that? Well, it's because you, prodigal, might just choose it. This covenant is a relationship, a, a real, a real relationship, which means you can opt out. Friends, have you ever suffered the free will exercised by others in your life? God has. God loves you, loves me, loves all of us enough to honor our desires to perhaps in a moment not love God back, to walk away. And then to justify our separation by any means necessary. God, who is the father of every prodigal, lets people walk away, but not without the promise of open arms if and when the prodigal would return. That's what we mean when we say that God's mind about us is made up and the news is good. As simply as we can say it today, it means that you will always have a home in the love of God. You will have every minute of your day, every minute, every second of your existence, you will have this invitation to find your place, your home in the identity-making love of God, and you will always also have the capacity to say no. Can I, again, recommend the spiritual formation classes or experiences that we are going to organize for you. Starting on Wednesday night, January 10th, you're going to have the opportunity to learn spirituality at the feet of one of the very best, the one who taught me and is still teaching me so much about the enduring, pursuing love of God. If you're not still not sure what it is that you'd be doing in a class like this, here's how I would describe it using today's text. What you're going to be doing in Dad's spiritual formation class on Wednesday nights at 6.30, you'll be number one, you'll be learning to listen for God's voice and God's message of nevertheless. Number two, you'll be learning about how you can accept and then respond to that love and make it the constant backdrop of your life. Here's the thing. I think Jason's class is absolutely crucial. And, and if you have not yet taken that class, then your best days are ahead of you. I would also say to you, I would also say to you that your capacity to hear the voice of God say this, this, this message to you, your capacity to hear the voice of God say, nevertheless, is crucial for your endurance because life is difficult. And all God's people said, 
Man, if you didn't say amen there, something's wrong with you. And what's wrong with you might be that you haven't learned to listen for the voice of God who says, nevertheless, to you, about you, alongside you. And given the process of spiritual formation, not only will you learn to hear that voice, but you'll learn how to move around in that space and live your life shaped, shaped by nevertheless. If you're going to be in this class, and I really hope you will, I mean, I'm, I am going to ask, man, there's some folks who have been at OKC First for a long time that really need to take this class. Is it because the preaching hasn't been great? It might be, right? But you need to take this class. Sign up by sending us an email at info at okcfirst.com and get this book in preparation for January 10th. And if you want to take the class but you can't afford the book, we'll afford the book for you. You really, really need to do this. And you really need to come back tonight. It's one of my favorite, now don't tell Easter I said this, but this might be my favorite <laughs> service of the, I love this service. Love this service. And here's a moment that I find most meaningful. Ready? It is the moment when our kids remind us of the message of nevertheless. Piece by piece, figure by figure, the nativity scene will be reconstructed right over there in front of the organ. And the message that will come beaming out of that and every other nativity scene, if you know how to look at it, the message that comes beaming out of that scene is God saying as clearly as God can say it, I have come to love you no matter what. Right? I mean, it's a mom with a questionable reputation. It's a father in fear for his family. It's shepherds who make for terrible eyewitnesses. It's wise men who represent other countries and other religions. It's dirty and smelly farm animals. It's a birthplace fit for dirty and smelly farm animals, farm animals, not animals. And it's a helpless, vulnerable infant. Here is your God. Making good on the promises made to David and his line. Making good on promises made to the people of God throughout time. Making good on the promises God made with you and with me. And the message isn't, not in that kind of scene, the message, message isn't, look out, I may overpower you. It can't be. <laughs> the message isn't, if you don't get your stuff together, you're going to be punished. It's a baby. In compromising circumstances. The message is, nevertheless. The message is, I'm here to win your heart and your mind and your life by loving you. And that love is secure. It is set. It is unconditional. Nevertheless. So now it's kind of up to you. You know, whenever you're ready... Your life can change if you will just drink deeply of the nevertheless and try as best you can 
to lose, at least as it has to do with your understanding of your connection to God, try as best you can to lose the if-then language that perhaps has terrorized you your whole life. <laughs> I just had a, a great conversation even this morning about how there are some people who just made a beeline to the altar every Sunday night in dread fear that I just didn't get it right last week. I'm almost persuaded. What, what if, how would it change the shape of your life if you lived not in the breathless attempt to satisfy God's conditions? What would your life look like if you lived in response to in response to that which was unconditional. In other words, what if, what if I'm telling the truth when I say to you, what if God's bind about you is made up and the news is good? Y'all, what if you believed that? So every week when we gather, we gather to rehearse covenant muscles. And here's what I mean by that today. We, we gather to rehearse our capacity to hear God say, nevertheless. <laughs> but as is the theme for our Advent gatherings this year, we must remember that these gifts, as good as they are, and they are good, as good as they are, and as good as they are for us, they are never meant to stop with us. I got a gift this morning from one of the best kids in our entire church. Just, just a beautiful kid who could not wait to hand me handmade gifts. And it hit me as he handed it to me. He enjoys giving that more than he enjoyed making. Yeah, the gifts of God are best enjoyed Yes, when they are received, but then when they are received and then shared. Covenant muscles. Covenant muscles. If you're going to help us with this particular exercise, would you come on down and help us get organized? And Heavenly Father, bless these elements. Bless the bread and the cup. Simple elements, and yet somehow, God, in your hands, they become something more. They become the tangible reminders of the covenant, the covenant that you've extended to each of us and all of us. And now, God, as you bless these elements, bless us as well. Grant us the capacity to not just receive these elements, but, God, with open hands, may we receive and then share what it is that you have made available to us. God, may we eat so much of this bread that we would start to wonder if we were actually becoming the bread that is taken, blessed, broken, and given. If you are visiting with us today, first of all, welcome. Very glad you're here. We do this every week. It's called, it's called communion by intinction. And I want you to know that you are invited to participate, but you do not have to participate. All are invited, but none are compelled. 
In a second, I'll ask you to stand to your feet, to exit your pews to your left, and to come forward with your hands cupped, your hands cupped to receive these tangible gifts meant to help us to spot the covenant love of God. As you approach someone holding a plate of bread, that person will take a piece of bread and press it into your open hands and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Don't eat it just yet. Take that piece of bread and dip it into the cup. When you do, that person will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you, and then take and eat. And then if you would, find a place to pray. Now, if you come to one of these side padded altars, we will assume that you are there for a prayer for healing, and somebody will come down and pray that prayer for you. You might need physical healing. It might be mental, emotional, familial, relational, Whatever you need, we will pray that prayer for you at these side padded altars. You may want to come down front because you have some business to do with God. We won't assume a thing, but at some point, probably me, I'll come down and just make sure that you know that you're not praying alone because you're not. And you can circle right back around and pray at your seats. I promise God can hear those prayers too. But I do hope that you'll pray something like this. God, God, help me to build covenant muscles. <laughs> In a contract world, God, reach me again with this reminder of your covenant extended to us that I might build covenantal muscle. If you'd like to make a special trip down here, there's also a bowl of water here that is down here to help remind you of the moment of your baptism when you were incorporated into this particular culture of life, this way of being alive, this posture. Now, you may be saying, I don't know if I qualify because I did a dumb thing today or I did a bad thing this week. Here's the thing. If you know you need this grace, that's all you need to be qualified for this moment of grace. That's all you need. Whether you're a visitor or a longtime member, if you know you need this grace, you will always be welcome around this table. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it. And he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body, broken for you. And every time you eat of it, including today, remember me. The same way, after dinner, he took the cup and held it up before them saying, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink of it, including today, remember me. Remember the covenant. Receive it. And now all across the sanctuary, if you would, stand to your feet, exit your pews to the left, and come forward with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of God meant to nourish the people of God.